We start Advent today, okay? Um, and uh, that's, of course, why we sang Christmas songs. Some of you were like, yeah, Christmas music. Go ahead, admit it. Who was there? Yes. Some of you were like, oh, Christmas music. <laughs> Who was it? Okay, it's fine. You know, I, whatever. Um, I was like, yes, Christmas music. But like next week, I'll be like, oh, again? Um, it happens. It is what it is. But here's the thing about Christmas. When we get to Advent, uh, we do this simply because, in case you didn't know, it's all about Jesus. Okay? Um, all conspiracy theories aside, uh, we celebrate Christmas um, because of Jesus. Okay? Now, yes, it's true. Um, some of you are wanting to yell at me right now and correct me, and uh, congratulations um, on your theology. It's solid. Jesus was not born on Christmas. Okay? I get it. Um, Jesus wasn't born in December. It's okay. We're going to be all right. Uh, but the reason we celebrate, okay, some of you are like, what? I've never heard that. It's true. It's a true thing. Um, but the reason we celebrate Christmas is about Jesus. The whole point of this is about Jesus. And when we have Advent, Advent, what we're doing is we are typically looking um, to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. That's what it means in a Christian sense. Okay, is that we're looking to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. And we're going to do that a little bit differently this year. Typically, what we do for Advent is we like to look 2,000 years in, in, in to the past, and we like to think about um, Jesus' coming as a human. When he was born, okay, when God um, instituted his kingdom, with the coming of Jesus. And we've talked about that, and, and we, we, we do that a lot during Advent. Uh, but this year, what we're going to ask you to do is we're going to ask you, instead of looking backwards, we're going to ask you to look forwards. Okay? We're going to ask you to look forward. In light of the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago, in light of the fact that God has been rolling in his kingdom, we're going to have Advent this year looking ahead to the return of Jesus. See, if Advent is um, the arrival or the waiting of someone notable, then church, we ought to be in a season of perpetual Advent, waiting for Jesus. Because we live in an age where Jesus has come and where he's instituted his kingdom, and we've talked about this, and we live in the in-between. We live in the kingdom of God, but we don't yet live in its fullness. And we're waiting for that fullness to come with the return of the person of Jesus. And we're going to look at that, this Advent series in the book of Revelation. And I want to tell you as we look at Revelation um, that there are some things we can read Revelation and we can read them and we can know them for certain. No questions asked. We know this is true when we read the book of Revelation. We can see it because it's word for word. We understand it. There are some things in the book of Revelation that we read that are better to be understood as an idea for idea kind of a translation. Okay? And then there are some things where we can make our best guesses about what they mean, but because they haven't happened yet, we're just making our best guesses. As we look at Revelations this Advent, we're going to be looking at things we can know for certain. And just about everything you can know for certain in the book of Revelation is about Jesus. Because it's all always been about Jesus. That's where our hope comes from. Barb lit the hope candle today. 
It's what Hebrews 11.1 tells us all about. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That is hope. Our hope is in our faith, and our faith is in Jesus. Our faith is in things that we can't see for sure. See, here's the problem with faith, the way the rest of the world looks at it. I don't know, if you're here today and you're a Christian and you've demonstrated this faith to other people, then maybe you've had these questions. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then perhaps you've thought this about other people's faith or my faith or whatever. And the question is this, is how can you have faith in something that hasn't happened? Or how can you be sure about something that you can't really be sure about? Because it hasn't happened. And how do you know for certain when you say these things? And, and, and we get this idea that you've probably um, been told that, that you're, you just have blind faith or superstitious faith. Or, as I've been told on occasion, that I've got worthless faith. And the problem is that what we're doing is we're asking people, when we talk about faith to people outside the church, What we're asking them to do is have faith in the things that we have faith in. The problem with asking them to have faith in the things that we have faith in is why would they? There's no reason for them to. Because our faith comes from Jesus. Someone that doesn't believe in Jesus, or at least not the Jesus of the Bible, someone that doesn't believe in Jesus is not going to be able to have hope for the future because hope for the future comes from the God of the universe. Hope for the future comes from Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. Not hope in the idea. See, this is why I hope you you picked up on what Barb was talking about. Not hope like I was really hoping the Cubs would pull it out in game seven. And guys, I was really hoping the Cubs would pull it out in game seven. (laughs) And I had hope. You asked Travis. Travis just about broke his finger when uh, uh, Chapman or whoever it was gave up a two-run home run. He took off his hat and he smacked it on the table and he caught his finger and he just about broke it. And my brother is laying face down on the ground crying. (laughs) And my dad is in the back saying, see, I told you. (laughs) And I'm saying, look, no, I'm like, guys, it's going to be okay. That was blind faith because there is nothing in my history to tell me that was going to be okay. It was blind faith. The problem with with the rest of the world that's outside of Christ, when they think about faith, what they think about is that we have faith in the future the way I had faith that the Cubs would pull it out. But as we look at Revelations, which is a future-looking book, this is a letter that John wrote that looks forward. I want you to think of it differently. This isn't faith. This isn't faith like I had faith that the Cubs would pull it out. This is something that I can know for certain. This is something that I could say confidently. This is something that I could bet everything I own on with full assuredness that it's going to work out the way that I want. It's that kind of hope. Okay? So as we get into the book of Revelations, we are, we are talking about what's going to be happening in the future with Christ coming back, and, and we're going to celebrate this together. Okay? And frankly, it's time for that. Because I don't know how you are on all this. And I'm tired. I am sick of the world the way that it is. I mean, I'm, guys, 
Like, I'm going to be okay. Like, I don't need hugs after the service. <laughs> but I'm tired. This thing is broken. It doesn't work the way that it is. And people panic because it's broke and it doesn't work the way that it is. And if you don't, see, here's the thing. We look at this from two different angles. We look at this world. If you look at this world as, as someone who has no faith in God, let me rephrase. If you look at this world as somebody who has no faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Savior of the world, in the God of the Bible, okay, then honestly, where does your hope come from? It doesn't. Your hope comes from the, the idea that people will one day wake up and figure it out. See, without, without the idea of, of heart change that comes from Jesus of the Bible, you know, if we say, well, we, the world is going to get better, things are going to get better, yeah, not because of Jesus, not because of the church, things are just going to get better. What I'm banking on is that one day people will wake up and they'll stop being jerks that they'll just get it someday and that everybody can just start to be nice to each other and everybody can start to think and, and do things that are, that are good and, and that the world will naturally improve. I got a long history that tells me that that's not going to be. But when I look at it from a Christian viewpoint, I know the thing that makes it better is Jesus. The only thing that makes it better is Jesus. See, that, that's what God's been telling us all through Scripture. And the reason, the reason we linger here a little bit today is because I want you to realize that when we get to our text in Revelation 5, Okay, when we get to our text in Revelation 5, that what we're looking at is the culminating, inaugurating event of what God has been preparing us for and God has been preparing the world for and God has been preparing the church for and that God has been preparing for since the beginning. And that's what we'll see when we get to Revelation 5. But he's been doing this all along. He's been preparing for this all along. He's been building us into this all along. Remember, we've talked about this. The world is broken, but God says, I know that it's broken. He knows that. And he's been telling us since the beginning with Abram, Moses, Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. I know that it's broken. I know that it doesn't work, but it's okay. I'm rolling in the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. I'm bringing it. It's going to make things better. And Jesus, all of a sudden, Jesus comes. We get that that first Christmas, Jesus comes, and, and the kingdom now is here in part, but we know it's not here in full. But God hasn't stopped telling us, it's okay, I'm rolling in the kingdom. When somebody dies, when tragedy happens, when hate runs free, when people spit in God's face, when things break, when the world is seemingly falling apart, God says to you, to me, through his son, through scripture, it's okay because I am rolling in the kingdom. There is a time and a place where things will be better, where evil will be abolished, where sin will have no place, where every tear will be wiped away. God says, I am rolling in the kingdom. 
and we read about the inauguration of that kingdom in Revelations 5. So we're going to do this together. Uh, we're going to take it chunk by chunk. We're going to look at the whole chapter, and uh, we're going to see how this event unfolds. And I want you to understand, this event has not happened. If this event had happened, we would know it. Because trust me when I tell you that when this event happens, it unleashes this whole scenario that the world will not be able to ignore. This is end times things. The fancy word for that, if you want to sound cool with your friends, is eschatology, right? You get together for Christmas, you'd be like, so let's talk about our eschatological views. Don't do that. You can do that when you're with me and I'll think you're cool. But if you do that with other people, they'll mock you. So I'm trying to, say, I'm trying to spare you. But, but that's what this is. This is future things. This is, um, Revelation is a, is a book that is written by John, John the Apostle, as he has been um, exiled to the island of Patmos. He's in his 90s now as he writes this. So, so um, everyone else that he knows, everyone else that was with him at this time uh, with Jesus is, is, is long since passed. Um, most have been martyred, um, executed, um, either by the Jews or by Rome. And, and John was not executed. He was exiled okay, to this island. And when I say he was exiled to an island, don't think Hawaii, right? Think lost. Who's seen lost? It was that island. It was bad. I don't think there were polar bears um, because I still never figured that out about lost. But he's exiled to that island, okay? And he's there, and part of that is he writes, okay? He has a vision, um, he has this grand exchange with God, and he writes what he sees, and this is future now that we're reading. And so we get this in Revelation 5, and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, by the way, him who sits on the throne, very clearly we've read to this point when we get to Revelation 5, this is God. So, I saw in the right hand of God, him who sat on the throne, a skull a scroll, no skull, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay. Now, the reason we linger there for a minute is because I want you to know what this scroll is. Okay, it's important that we understand what this scroll is. This scroll is something significant. When you think scroll, you think piece of parchment, some writing on it, and it's rolled up. Okay, then we, then we read this next thing, that it's been sealed seven times with seven seals. Uh, in case you're not familiar with that, the sealing of a parchment would look like this. Um, it would be red wax, okay? And the wax would be heated and it would be dripped over the opening so that it was sealed shut. And then someone would take their, what they called a signet ring or an emblem or a seal of some kind, and they would press the seal onto the hot wax and it would form this barrier so that the thing couldn't be opened without the wax being broken. Okay, and what was interesting about that too is that each of the, the stamps um, for legal purposes would have um, an emblem or a crest so that you couldn't fake it, right? So if it was my letter that I was sending, I would use my seal with my stamp and I would send it to Carrie because... Well, why wouldn't I send it to Carrie? I love her. And so she's got this thing here, and she takes the thing, and, and she would know by, by the fact that it was still sealed shut with this red stamp, she would know that it had not been tampered with, 
that it hadn't been looked at by anybody else, that it was still sealed. Somebody might have opened it and then resealed it, but it wouldn't be with my stamp. So the fact that it's sealed this way means that it is, is an official legal document. This is the way legal documents were done. Specifically, this is the way that wills were written. And when they were sealed seven times, was not uncommon. Um, it means that you, it, once it was written, you would roll it, seal it, keep rolling it, seal that section, keep rolling it, seal that section. So each section would have its own seal. And the thing about these documents is that the only one allowed to open them was the legal owner. In the case of a will, while I was living, the only one allowed to open my will would be me. Once I have died, the only one allowed to open my will would be my heir, because then they would be the legal owner. And there's a lot of speculation about what this is, but based on what we know about it, what we know about historical documents at that time uh, that John was writing, and what we know happens when the scrolls are opened, we can say pretty definitively that we know exactly what this scroll is. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. This scroll is God's will. It is the title deed to the earth. And God gives it to Jesus. We'll get to that part. But that's what the scroll is. It's the title deed to the earth. Uh, and it's not just about judgment and inheritance, okay? Um, but it's also the announcement, get this, this is what we have to understand here about why we're so interested in looking forward to this moment in time. Because God has been saying, I'm rolling in the kingdom, I'm rolling in the kingdom, it's going to be okay, I know it sucks, but I'm rolling in the kingdom, things are going to get better. You be firm, you remember your mission, you stay on target, and I'm rolling in the kingdom. And then we get to this point at Revelation 5, some future time when God says, okay, here's the scroll. And he hands it to Jesus because it's the title to the earth and, and it announces the culmination, and the consummation of history. This is the moment where everything that God has been saying is going to happen is, in fact, going to happen. And it's about how things ultimately will end for all people. This is a big deal. It's about judgment for the world. It's about reward for the saints. This is, this is a big moment in history that we're waiting for, and it's going to happen. And so we continue. So, so we see the scroll. It's sitting there, uh, the one on the throne. God is holding the scroll, and we, we continue in Revelations 5, 2 through 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Okay. If you're like me right there, your brain is automatically going to go to uh, Excalibur, right? Like the sword and the stone kind of a deal. Like, who's worthy to take the sword out and whatever? Um, it's not like that. Um, one, there's no sword, there's no stone. And that other one's make-believe. But, but it's like this. Think about this, okay? It's this moment where when you had the sword and the stone, if, you, if you're familiar with the story, lots of people would go and say, oh, well, maybe I'm worthy, right? And they'd try to pull it out. Um, and if you remember that story, they, they were unsuccessful. And um, finally, King Arthur gets there and he's able to remove it. He's worthy. He didn't know it for sure, but it turns out he was. This isn't like that. Okay, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Like, who does the world belong to? Who will take ownership of the world? Like, who can do this? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. Listen to me. Nobody budges. 
Nobody tries to see if they're worthy. We all know. They know that they're not. Nobody budges. And it says that John, this is John writing, he says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And you can kind of feel his passion there. This is the title deed to the earth. This is the kingdom that has been promised. It's what we're waiting for. And the angel says, somebody that's worthy, come take it and open it and make it happen. And no one is found. And it breaks John's heart. You know why it breaks his heart? You should. It's because this is wrong. I mean, I, I want you to be happy. I want you to be full of joy. I want you to be, but, you know, even in my best days, and I mean, I've got some good days, but I'm never confused thinking that this is the way it's supposed to be. And John knows that. And he's waiting, and all of a sudden, there's no one found, and he's devastated, okay? He weeps, and he weeps because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside, but it continues. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, so we get this moment where now John is devastated and heartbroken because the scroll can't be opened. And one of the elders, by the way, you want to know who the elder is? I don't know. There's a couple of things we're going to read in this text that I can't know. Like, I could speculate, and it would take all the time we've got for me to speculate. You're going to read about the 24 elders. You're going to read about the living beings. Okay? And you're going to read about all of the angels, the multitudes, the millions and millions of angels. I, okay? We could spend a lot of time dealing with those things. Okay? And, and, and perhaps we can at some point. But right now, don't worry about who the elder is, but focus in on this issue. The elder, the one who knows, is saying to the one who's heartbroken, stop crying. I like to think he's saying, man up a little bit. Put on your big boy pants. It's going to be all right. Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And we know definitively who this is. All through the Old Testament, the lion of the tribe of Judah is, is reference to the Messiah. Whenever we read about the lion of Judah, we're reading about the Messiah. Whenever we read about the root of David or the root of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, same root, the root of Jesse or the root of David, we're reading about the promised Messiah all through the Old Testament. Okay, and here we are, John, in, in the future, is seeing this exchange that's happening, and the elder says, stop crying, because look, the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed, and therefore he's worthy to open the scroll and read what's inside. He's triumphed to open the scroll and see what's inside. Victory is his. Okay? And now we see what, what we, we kind of get this sense because we know the story. We kind of get this sense of what it means to be worthy to open the scroll. To open the scroll means that you have virtue, that you have righteousness, and that you've earned it. 
And that's what we read with Jesus, right? That Jesus, by virtue of his life and his sacrificial death, has triumphed over sin and therefore is worthy to open the scroll. See, there's something I need you to get here, okay? And that's Christ alone as Messiah is the executor of the purposes of God and is the heir of the inheritance of the world. Listen, Jesus has the authority and virtue to open the title deed to the earth. No one else does. The reason I need you to drill down there is because we live in a world that is going to tell you that a lot of things will get you to heaven. You ever see the movie Finding Nemo? It's okay to admit it. Okay, well, when, when Nemo is in um, P. Sherman, Wallaby Way, Sydney, um, he, he's in the fish tank at the dentist's office, right? Um, they have an escape plan. And the escape plan is to get flushed down the toilet or go down the drain or do something because there's this common phrase that they continue to use, which is, all drains lead to the ocean. We've kind of got an all drains lead to the ocean kind of an attitude spiritually in the world that we live in, especially in this country. All drains lead to the ocean. Always get you there. Any religion will get you where you need to get. Any path will get you where you need to go. Any God will do the same thing for you as my God does for me. Any way you want to slice it, as long as you're sincere, you're going to be okay. As long as you're better than the other guy, as long as you're better than most, as long as you... um, don't hurt people. As long as you have something that you believe in, you are ultimately going to be okay. But that's not at all what I read. If this is true, okay, and if this is real, and and we've talked about this many, many times, you can go back and listen to sermons online about why we believe the Bible to be the authoritative word of God, why it's true. But if this is true, okay, then you can't say that all drains lead to the ocean, that all paths will get you to heaven, because I hear the angels saying, who is worthy to take the scroll? And I see John weeping and weeping and weeping because there is nobody found on the earth, above the earth, under the earth, anywhere. No one else is found worthy except Jesus. He is the only one who has the proper ownership of the title deed of the earth. He is the only one that can take it, open it, see what's inside. And only he is worthy by virtue of his life and death on the cross. I need you to hear me here. If you were banking on some other way doing for you what Jesus does for me, then according to this, one of us is woefully mistaken. And I'm feeling confident. They don't all get you there. There is one who is worthy to open the scroll and look inside, and it is Jesus And it is by virtue of his life and sacrificial death. We keep going here in Revelation 6. Then John sees. The the elder says, stop crying. It's going to be okay. There is one worthy. It's the Messiah, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Root of David. It's going to be okay. And so John looks to see this Messiah, and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
Okay, now, again, the four living creatures, the elders, and the seven eyes and seven horns, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but I don't want us to get hung up there. I want us to look at, at the reality of what's happening here, and this is it. John looks for the one that the elder was talking about, and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And right away, you should be thinking Jesus. You should be thinking the cross. If you know your Old Testament history, you're thinking that this is the sacrifice in fullness that had been offered in part for centuries. Go all the way back to the book of Exodus with Moses leading his people out of captivity from Egypt. You remember the plagues. There were, there were 12 plagues. Is that right? There were 10 plagues. Forgive me. The frogs feel like more than one, because <laughs> you know I hate frogs. So any, any plague with frogs, that feels like it should be like times three. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Here's the thing. There were 10 plagues, and the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. You can't miss the symbolism of this. The death of the firstborn, meaning that the world is broken, and, and the the necessary trajectory of being broken and apart from God is death. But God says this. He says, but you, I'll redeem you. Here's how I will redeem you. Take a lamb, perfect and spotless. Sacrifice it. Take the blood of the lamb. Smear it on the doorposts. And this is what I'll do. I will then pass over your home and you will be saved by the blood of the Lamb. And then they leave, and the sacrificial system is instituted that says, look, you want to be right with God? Redemption costs blood. And it's this picture that God's giving them way back then that's going to mean something so much more with Jesus. But he says here, redemption costs blood. So you want your sins to be forgiven? You want your sins to be covered? Then Sacrifice, the sacrificial system, the perfect spotless lamb from your herd that you bring and, and that is sacrificed and, and who covers your sin for a time being because that sacrifice had to be repeated because it wasn't permanent, because this was a created imperfect thing that I was having cover my sin, um, but it covered my sin, but then I continued to sin and I'd have to do it again and it would cover my sin, but then I would continue to sin, and I'd have to do it again, and I had to do it over and over and over again until Jesus. Jesus, who is the perfect, spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's what we read about him. He says, I'm you know, the perfect, spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world so that I don't have to repeat this anymore because this is now no longer a temporary solution, but this is the perfect sacrifice. And my sins are forgiven. And my relationship with God is right. And when I trust Jesus, it's not just my current sins. It's my past sins and my future sins. I'm trusting in Jesus for the covering of my sins. And 
So when John looks to see the one that is worthy, he sees this great duality in the Messiah. He sees the lamb who looks like it was slain. This is Jesus post-cross. This is Jesus' sacrifice, the lamb as if it had been slain. But where do I see him? Standing in the center of the throne with the elders and living beings around him. And he's got the seven eyes and the seven horns, which is the seven spirits of God. All you need to know about that right now is that that talks about his divinity. And so he says, I look at Jesus and I see two things. I see the suffering, sacrificial servant. And I see a conquering king. I see Jesus as sacrifice. And I see Jesus as divine. And we would do well to understand Jesus as both. See, the problem that the Jews had at the time of Jesus is they were waiting for the Messiah that was the conquering king. But they couldn't understand a Messiah that was going to suffer. The problem with Christians, it's a less significant problem, by the way, the problem with Christians is we understand the sacrificial Messiah, the one who dies for our sins. But too often, we take it way easy when we try to understand Jesus as a conquering king that will return. But that's what we need to be looking ahead to, longing for, waiting for the return of the king. And so this is all happening now in this future time when John looks up to see who's worthy to take the scroll and he sees the Messiah who is also the lamb that was slain but is also a divine king standing in the center of the throne with his subjects surrounding him with all of the marks of divinity. By the way, those horns that we talk about there and the eyes talks about omniscience, omnipotence, okay? Talks about his dominion over the earth. That's what those are in reference to. We can study those another time, but that's what those are about. So, so John is seeing God who was slain for his people. And then Jesus takes the scroll. He went and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Symbolically, the second person of the Trinity is taking the title deed of the earth from the person, uh, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and the kingdom is about to come in fullness. The end is now. Now, here's the thing I want you to know about this. This is another little thing I have to drill down. We got to get this. Jesus knows this moment is coming. This is in the future. Jesus knows this moment will happen. Jesus does not know when this moment will happen. And so listen very carefully to me. Please hear me. Neither do you or those really smart people that tell you they know. They don't know either. Look what Jesus says about this in Matthew 24, 36. It says, but about that day, talking about this day right here, about this day in the future that John writes about in Revelation 5, about that day or hour, no one knows not the angels in heaven, nor the son. He's the son. And he says, I don't know. The only one that knows is God the Father. I told you before about the copy of the book I had, right? That was 88 Reasons Why Jesus Would Return in 1988. It was expensive, but now you can get it for like a buck. <laughs> it's a page turner. How many times has the end of the world been predicted? How many times has it come to pass? None. 
we're still here. Stop listening to people that tell you that they know. Jesus himself doesn't know. And I can promise you that if Jesus himself doesn't know, the second person of the Trinity, that no matter how much I study or decipher or code or ancient texts I find to pour through, or what Mayan calendars line up to wear, that one didn't happen either. We don't know. But this is a future moment. And this moment in the future when Jesus takes the scroll from the Father signifies the time that God is executing his plan, his final plan of redemption for the world. This is the time when the kingdom comes in full, when Jesus takes the scroll and prepares to open it. That's what this whole thing is about. It's what we're waiting for. And when he takes the scroll, here we'll just go through these other verses very quickly, but here's what happens when he takes the scroll. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. There's some imagery there that we'll talk about another time. Let's not get hung up. Let's just look at the reaction. Okay, here's what they do. They sang a new song, sang. This is a new song. See, to us, we, we say, we've sang this song before. No, 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 but they haven't. They haven't yet in heaven because this hasn't happened yet. We sing this because we've seen the words in Revelation, but, but they haven't sang this yet because this is a future event that hasn't happened yet, but here's what they'll say. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's what that is. That's what he's saying. He's saying uh, all, of the, all of the elders and all of the creatures and all of the angels are going to stand around and they are going to say, you, Jesus, you are worthy to do this because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for the Father people from every tongue, tribe, nation, every nationality, every people group of the world. You have purchased people by your blood for yourself that will bend their knee, and that will say, Jesus is Lord. And that freedom is freedom from sin, and that freedom ushers them into this reality. Get this. This is true for you. If you're a Christian here today, this is true for you. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. If you are here today, you are, as a Christian, a priest. Some of you who have a different um, religious background than I do are really going to struggle with the idea that you as a Christian are a priest because you've been taught about a different system or classification. Okay, And so for our Catholic friends or maybe some of our Lutheran friends, this is going to be hard for you to, to, to wrap your head around because you're going to say, whoa, time out, time out, time out. Uh, priests are, are, are a different class of people. It's one of, the, one of the ways that we disagree with our Catholic friends. Or Lutheran, I don't read that. I read something different, not just here, but scattered throughout the New Testament. I read that as a Christian, you are now part of a priesthood of believers. You have direct access to the throne room of God. See, remember in the Old Testament, the only people that could go in to the Holy of Holies, the only people that could go to the inner part of the sanctuary at the temple or the tabernacle was the high priest. And he could only go in there to make intercession for the people. You don't need a priest to do that for you any longer because you get to go directly to the throne room because of the 
perfect, spotless sacrifice, Jesus. So as Christians, we are, we are priests. But they continue, and this is what they do. They, they not only sing, but then I... Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Jesus is worthy to receive all of these things because he is the Lamb that was slain. There it is. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that are in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And get this, the elders fell down and worshiped. I need you to understand what just happened there. The lamb that was worthy. We saw earlier about the seven um, horns and the seven eyes and, and what, what speaks of omniscience and omnipotence and dominion over the earth. But now I need you to really see what's happening here. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Holy is he. He's worthy to take the scroll, to open the scroll, to br- usher in the end times. He's worthy of all of this. Why? Okay, because he was slain, because he's God, because of all of these things. And, and they fell down and they worshiped. One of the other things that we do at Christmas time is we like to argue with our friends who will tell us that Jesus is not God. Nobody any longer can deny the existence of Jesus. Nobody can deny the existence of Jesus. Really, nobody can deny the crucifixion of Jesus any longer. Those are um, archaeological historical facts at this point in time. But what you'll have is you'll have people denying that Jesus is God. Jesus was just a good guy. Jesus was a teacher. Maybe they'll tell you Jesus was a jerk. I don't know. But they're going to tell you that Jesus was not God. You're going to have even friends in town here that will come and knock on your door from the kingdom hall that'll tell you, um, you know what, we believe basically the same thing you believe. Um, We just don't think Jesus was God. I'm going to tell you that is a way that you part. That, That is the point where you part and you say, you know what, we don't have fellowship with religion any longer. Um, our faith differs too drastically. Because right here I'm reading that Jesus was worshipped as God. And maybe you're saying, well, they're worshipping him, but that doesn't mean he's God. Well, look, look what happened earlier in the text. Revelations 19.10 says this. Uh, this is John talking. At that time, at this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. Don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. You only worship God. It happens again in Revelation 22.9. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets. And with all who keep the words of the scroll, worship only God. And then we get to this point in Revelation 5 where these same angels and same elders fall down at the feet of Jesus and worship him. What does that tell you? It tells you that he's God. Listen, the culmination of God's redemptive story is that he is the only one worthy Jesus is the only one able to open the scroll and set the end times plans in motion. He is the only one able to abolish evil forever. This is where we start our Advent series, looking ahead to this moment and what's to come. 
This has not happened yet. This is a time clearly in the future. This is a time where what Jesus has secured on the cross will start to come to full fruition. This is the time where God has been saying, I am rolling in the kingdom. This is the moment where Jesus breaks the seals. And you know what happens when Jesus breaks the seals. In case you know the story of Revelation, if you don't, here's what happens. Jesus will start to break the seals. This is where end times events will start to happen. We know this is the great tribulation. When Jesus breaks the seals, that is when plagues will hit the earth. Judgment will come on the earth. And at the culmination of that time, which we know to be seven years, that's when Christ will return in full force and defeat, demolish evil once and for all. This all happens in some future time, and this is where it kicks off, when Jesus takes the scroll from the Father, when the Father says it is time, and he takes the scroll, and he is the only one able to do it. That's the God we worship. That's what we're waiting for. So listen, I love baby Jesus. How many of you have little baby Jesus in your manger at home? We like baby Jesus. Baby Jesus is cool, right? It's a great story, right? That's why it's in the Bible. It's a good deal. And I'm fine with us. We had the praise team to come up, prepare to close us out. I'm fine with baby Jesus. But let's not linger at baby Jesus too long. I know it's Christmas and that's the way we think. And that's, but let's not, this Christmas season, let's not linger here too long. We need to move forward. We need to see that Jesus is coming was always about our redemption, and it's always about this thing that's to come in the future. And so I'm going to ask you to do this as we go through the series. It's, it's simple, okay? I want you to be more than aware. I want you to be ready. See, part of Advent is this looking forward and getting excited about what's to come. I, I want you to not just be aware that Jesus is going to be coming back at some point in the future. I want you to be ready for it. I want you to be longing for it. I want you to be excited about the return of Jesus personally. I want you to think about this last week. And I'm going to ask you this question, and you don't have to answer me out loud, but I want you to think. If you were thinking about the return of Jesus being imminently close and happening any moment now, would you maybe have made some different choices this past week? Would you maybe have thought some different things, or would you maybe have acted in some different ways? Honestly, I mean, I think I would have. I might chose to spend my time a little differently. And you know what? Evangelistically, if you were understanding the return of Jesus to be imminently close, are you, are you confident that you're taking your responsibility to share Jesus with people that don't know Jesus? Because as much as we are excited about the return of Jesus, there are people, many, many people that we know and love that should be terrified at the idea of the return of Jesus. Are you evangelistically, are you doing all that you can to be prepared for this? Not just knowing that it will happen, but being ready. And as we do that, as we, as we live here, that really helps us live in the kingdom like we've talked about and experience this revival that we want to experience. It's all connected. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the ability to know not the timing of and not all of the details exactly, but to know what's coming. We thank you for the reality that you are rolling in your kingdom and that your kingdom will come in fullness at this exact moment in the future when you hand the title deed to the earth to your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that he is worthy because he is the lamb that was slain. 
We thank you that we can have relationship with you because of his sacrifice. We thank you that we can experience fullness because of what he accomplished on our behalf. Father, I pray for those here that don't know you this morning. I pray for those that are in our circles of influence that don't know you, that we would be bold in sharing the truth of Jesus, that we would be respectful and we would be generous, but that we would be bold. Because this time is coming, and the reality is real, and the consequences are real. And we pray that you'll help prepare us and equip us for this moment. God, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. Amen.